Well, would you pray with me, please, this morning as we open the word? Father, give us strength to comprehend this love of Christ that Paul says is really incomprehensible. Such a contradiction that we would pray for something that in one respect is impossible, and yet whether we can comprehend it fully, we can still apprehend something of it. You would not mock us with a prayer like this, but it is there for our encouragement. And so we pray with Paul that we would know the breadth of your love in order that we may have confidence that there is room for all people and ethnic groups and families and tribes and and languages. Cause us to know its depth that we may have confidence that your forgiving love reaches even to the most degraded sinner. And that is exactly what we are. Cause us to know its length that we may have the assurance that your love for us will last for all eternity and will never come to an end. And cause us to know its height that we may experience the joys as we enter in by faith to the realities that your love will, as promised, exalt us to heaven itself that we may forever be with you, our Lord our Savior, our King, and our groom. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I told you last week that I planned to preach two messages on parenting and marriage with a view of the next round of equip classes that will start in the middle of September. And uh, I'm going to be true to that in part, uh, but as I dug into Ephesians 5 over the last several days, I just could not escape how the really powerful point that Paul is making is, is not a formula for happy Christian marriages, although there is that wisdom embedded. The greater truth, and even something that I think is more timely for church families like ours all around the world, is what undergirds Paul's teaching concerning Christian marriage, and that is that there is a Savior who identifies him as a groom and, and reveals to us in multiple places the intensity and fervency and even intimacy of his love for people like us. And my prayer is that God would take these powerful truths concerning the love of Jesus Christ for his bride into those deep and even dark places of your soul today that you would just feel immersed in it, swallowed up in it, amazed by it. And I'm confident, and I'll speak a specific word to husbands, Christian husbands who know the love of Jesus in their souls will become the kinds of husbands in their earthly marriages that God intended. Likewise, Christian wives who come under the dominating power, the transformational power of this love of Christ that never comes to an end, will also enter into the particular instructions and spirit of his word in the same passage. So while I'm not going to spend any time, per se, uh, addressing what Christian marriage should look like, it, it is with a firm belief that as we see Jesus, he will transform us personally, and by that, we'll transform our marriages and our parenting and our accounting and our yard work and our teaching and all those you know, thousand different roles that we're trying to fill right now. So would you follow along as I read a portion of the letter to the Ephesians, and I'd like to begin in verse 25. And I really do want you to pay attention to what Paul says about Christ 
and his love for his bride, which is the church. If you're using one of the uh, Bibles from the seat rack in front of you, uh, Ephesians will be found on page 979. So open your copy of the scriptures, please, and follow along as I read through verse 32. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. When Paul says this mystery, that is the one flesh union of one man and one woman, is profound. We could pause there and say it really is, that two people would enter into such a relationship that they, particularly over time, and as they exercise love toward one another, meld into one one unit, yet not losing their personal identities. I mean, that is, that is a mystery of sorts, but he doesn't leave it there, does he? No, he says, I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And that's where it really becomes staggering. It's one thing to see an earthly marriage that has endured for decades and decades through the ups and downs, the sin and pain and struggle that is a part of of earthly marriage. It's, it's one thing to look at those couples, some of whom are here today, and we say, wow, what, what a beautiful picture of committed love. We can, we can comprehend that because we've seen enough examples of it, despite the imperfect marriages that all of us are aware of and even participate in. But to press it to a deeper level, Paul is actually saying A Christian marriage is not ultimately about that mysterious union of one man and one woman for life, becoming one flesh. It's actually about the eternal union of Jesus with his bride. And this powerful truth is designed for some of you who day after day struggle to believe that the God who created you, the God against whom you have sinned so grievously as I have, could in fact love you and receive you to himself. But it's not merely that he brings you into his presence. No, through his son, he unites himself to you, to me, eternally, personally, intimately, irrevocably. And that puts us on our heels, particularly when we consider our sin, our failure, our weakness, our doubt, our unbelief, our fears. How could Jesus love any one of us so intensely that he would, as Paul is describing here, become one with us? Well, this passage tells us how. And it even gives us a glimpse into the why if you will, and it really is designed to be life-changing. And there are three aspects of Christ's love that I want to call you to meditate on for the next few minutes. So many of our life struggles 
particularly those relentless and often unending and personally defeating battles with our sin are tied, at least in part, if not in in their entirety, to either a forgetting of our identity and our union with Jesus Christ or temporarily suspending our faith and just kind of walking away from it. But here is a passage that reminds us not only of who we are in Jesus Christ, but reminds us that though we don't have the heart to persevere in faith, though we may not have the understanding to persevere in faith, there is one on the other side of this covenant agreement who says, I will persevere you to the very end and I will win you for myself in the end. So take heart. You who struggle with your sin, with your doubts, with your uncertainty, with the headlines that capture our attention, this is really good news. Now notice, if you will, please, in verse 25, husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The first and perhaps the most central expression of Christ's love for people like you and me is that he gave himself up. That's not a, a surrender in a wartime kind of scenario. We've heard horrific stories of people being surrounded and having to give themselves up to an enemy even in this past week. No, it was a surrender of a different kind. If you read Matthew's Gospel you will see no less than three significant moments where Jesus speaks very directly to his disciples. And he says things like this. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And he's using the same term that Paul uses here in this passage, gave up. The Son of Man will be given up into the hands of men and they will kill him. Matthew 17, 22 and 23. As they get closer to Jerusalem, the time approaches. It's even nearer than before. In Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19, Jesus says to his disciples as they are actually going to Jerusalem, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him or give him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He's not saying there's a possibility things could go south for us as we enter Jerusalem. He is going with the full knowledge of what is about to transpire. And then finally in Matthew 26, verse 2, he says to his disciples, and now they're just two days away. You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered to be crucified. The sacrifice in view is not the enormous downward step of the incarnation where Jesus laid aside the glory of heaven. We just sang of that, that old familiar hymn. And we try to capture some of that mystery and it, it was a descent from glory into the darkness of this world. And as Wesley wrote, he emptied himself of all but love. He, Wesley was trying to capture the truth of Philippians 2. A great emptying laid aside his glory for a time. He didn't cease to be God. He didn't give up any of his divinity, but he laid aside the glory that was rightfully his. Yet that is not what Paul is speaking of chiefly. The sacrifice in view is not the stress of his temptation in the wilderness as the devil came to him or the poverty he chose as a lifestyle during his earthly ministry or the 
continual resistance of the religious powers in his day. That's not the sacrifice that is in view. And the sacrifice is not even the agony that he experienced in the garden where he sweat great drops of blood. The sacrifice in view is nothing less than his death on the cross, the death that you and I deserve to die. And it was there he took the full and undiluted wrath of God for the sins of his bride. Who picks a bride that is such a wreck and actually living under a death sentence and says, I'll take your death sentence? Jesus does. The love of Jesus is a sacrificial love. Look at the words in the text again for her. I'm thankful for the feminine pronoun. He doesn't think of the church as an it. He thinks of his church as a bride. And he sacrificed himself in order that he might be eternally united to her. The church is comprised of all those who by faith have turned away from their sins and turned to Jesus in all the ages of all of history. There are many names recorded in the Old Testament. It wasn't called the church in those days, but they are a part of the church. From Adam to Abraham, from David through Solomon, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and a million more who aren't named anywhere in a history book, let alone in scripture. But as Jesus gives himself up for her, there are real people in view. There are Jews and Gentiles from his day. There are Greeks and Romans. There are Persians and Cyprians as the book of Acts reveals, and from our day there there are Afghanis and Americans. And as Jesus submits himself to the horrors of crucifixion with all its degrading humiliation, with all its excruciating pain, with all its crushing judgment, these people who comprise her are in his heart. And let me press that one step deeper. You were in his heart. You were in view. He knew that you could not bear the penalty of your sins. Crucifixion, eternal separation from God, the, the judgment of condemnation and wrath forever. He knew you could not bear that. And for love, he took your place. What a remarkable thought that what we deserve is not what we have received. What we can never imagine is what he offers. That any of us should be included in her, the bride. But here it is, in black and white. Jesus loves his church. You are the bride that he would have. You are the bride that he is ransoming with his blood. You are the bride that he is rescuing from the slave house of sin. Jesus Christ loves you and gave himself up for you. There's a second category in this passage that speaks of this great love that Jesus has for his bride, and it is described in that word, sanctifies. And without a doubt, I think the highlight of our year has been the marriage of our son, Luke, and we adore his bride, Emily. Uh, he told us this week, God willing, they will come visit over Christmas. So for those of you who have not met either one of them, we look forward to introducing them. 
And like all other brides we've ever known, whether family or friends, she, Emily, along with the help of her mother, prepared herself for the moment that she would see Luke on the wedding day and make those vows to him and he to her, and they would come together in marriage, in this covenant relationship, until death do us part, as they said. And that's what every bride does. But here, in this particular passage, there is something very different from our cultural practices. Here in this passage, it's not the bride who bears the ultimate responsibility for her preparation. It's the groom who comes forward and says, I will love you in such a way that it prepares you for this great day of presentation. Jesus is the one who powerfully works to prepare his bride for this great future day of presentation. So the sacrificial love of Christ, if you want to put these things together as Paul is doing it, is resulting in another work of Christ. You see, the cross finished and accomplished something very specific, but it results in something that is ongoing at this day. And that work is explained in three specific phrases, all of which are introduced with the little word that. So look at the first that in verse 26. So Christ died, gave himself up for verse 25. Now comes the first that, verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now comes the second that, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Here's the third one, that she might be holy and without blemish. So let's walk through this very briefly, a couple of key thoughts, that he might sanctify her. That word sanctification has a, a couple of nuanced meanings, but in, in, a, in a broad and general definition, you can understand that as uh, setting apart. And, and what Paul is pointing to is that Jesus is setting us apart. First, separating us from our sin and then moving us into the freedom of his love. And Jesus is intent on having a bride who is set apart from all others. He doesn't want to share you with anyone else, doesn't intend to do that. He also doesn't want you to remain uh, identified by your sin. He doesn't want you to remain in the realm of spiritual captivity or slavery to that sin. He doesn't want you to be a part-time idolater and a part-time follower of him. No, he wants you exclusively for himself. And to do that, he must purify you from every form of evil. I love this because many of us wrestle with a past that haunts us. And some of you have memories that you continue to lay before the Lord and say, please, God, I, I've asked you to forgive me. I don't feel forgiven at this moment. And you kind of go through this, this rigmarole and, of doubt and fear, and, and the past just haunts you. But here's one of those passages that reminds you that when Jesus begins to sanctify his bride, when he begins that act of purification, he is the one ultimately who's separating you from all of that. He is the one who says, I'm putting legal and spiritual and personal distance between you and your sins. Leave them there because they are no longer his concern. Now, that doesn't mean he just closes his eyes and acts like they don't exist. No, you can't untether this from the work of the cross, right? It's only through his shed blood that we have forgiveness. But he is actually 
sanctifying us. And then he goes on to say, having cleansed her, that is, and here's another word, a synonym for this work of of purification that's underway. He's actually removing the real evil. He's removing the filth that might remain from our sins, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, some commentators believe this may have reference to a ceremonial bridal bath uh, of that current day. And I mean, we can't say that definitively, but I offer this because I think this, this is beautiful. A bride-to-be, one author writes, would be led to a river and would bathe in a ceremonial cleansing from every defilement of her past life. That allowed her to enter marriage without any moral or social blemish. She was symbolically pure. Now, whether Paul had that in mind or not, here's the thing that really encourages my soul. Jesus is not working in a symbolical way. He's working in a real way. And I'm telling you on the authority of this word that regardless of what is in your past, this great lover of your soul works so powerfully, so completely that he separates you from your sin. He wants you to move forward in faith, basking in his love, being amazed by this grace of which we sang, saying, how could you love a sinner like me? And he says, because I love sinners like you. And you say, it doesn't make any sense. And he says, but it makes sense to me. So receive his forgiveness. Turn your back on your sins. Stop wallowing in your past. Stop trying to make amends through some form of penance. Like like you're gonna really pay off your debt? That's the nature of the gospel. Declare your bankruptcy and and receive his justification and, and his free and full forgiveness. So this is no symbolical work that he is doing. This is a real, lasting, personal, complete work that Jesus does for love. Now, notice what Paul says. He uses the word of God. We might even say the word of the gospel. I think Paul is picking up on what Jesus himself said back in John 15, three. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. I think it includes, I, I, I do think it includes this very living word. And when we read it, we are being washed with the water of this word. I I also think it may have to do with words of declaration that he speaks over us. And we were there in Romans 8. That's part of the reason I'm wondering if, if that's part of what's included. Because when he speaks a word of justification over you, remember what Paul said, we were just there? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. That's a word that can't be overturned. So here he is separating you from your past, not symbolically, but in truth and in reality. And now he's saying, I'm I'm just gonna continue to wash you with the word. Just listen to me. Listen to me speak of my love for you. Listen to me speak of my commands and instructions for you, which themselves are commands of love. It, It either has to do with loving God with all that you are or loving other people. There's no harmful word here that Jesus speaks. And then before he was crucified, John 17 records that high priestly prayer. And what does he pray? Among other things, he prays to the Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So don't you even see, here's here's the Trinitarian participation in your salvation. Jesus is actively washing us with the water, the word, and then even this beautiful prayer where he says, oh, Father, would you also purify and cleanse them, separate them from their sin, set them apart to me by your word. Does that not make you wanna just get in this word and say, oh Lord Jesus, wash me. 
But you know, at those moments where we have choices, am I gonna open the Bible and read it this morning as I begin the day, or read it in the middle of the day, or even at the close of the day? There are lots of other things that come uh, into our mind that seem attractive, sometimes even more necessary, don't they? I battle it just like you do, sometimes to the point of just vocal exasperation. I, I don't often call out when people are around to hear me. Maybe Kristen would have at some points, but there have been times where I've been like, Lord, Similar to Paul's Romans 7 thing, oh, wretched man that I am, I should be in your word. Why don't I love it? I, I, wanna, I wanna either you know, look at the news again or go on social media or make that phone call. I mean, like suddenly my mind is populated with 13 other things. And Jesus stands before me saying, come to me. I love you. Let me wash you with my word. But here's the promise that day after day, Jesus does in fact wash his bride with his word, setting her apart from her sin and the world more and more, transforming her from a wreck of a slave that no one would even say has a prospect of marriage, but bringing her out of that captivity and bondage and darkness and slavery to a place where she is going to be married. Take heart, Christian. This work of purification is what Jesus is committed to. Look at the next phrase. There's the next that. He doesn't simply want to purify you from every past evil. It's with a view that he would present you as part of his church in splendor, that he might present to himself the church in splendor. It's the thing everybody actually hopes and dreams of. Just a couple days ago, I stopped at IFA. You know, it's time for, well, it's actually a couple months overdue, step three of the fertilizer program, which makes all of our yards, you know, green. And if you don't use IFA fertilizer, you should. They did not pay me for that endorsement, but like since I moved here and my neighbor was the first one to tell me about it, he's like, go down there, get it. Well, I was in getting the, you know, step number three bag of fertilizer, and I'm in line, and there's a father standing there paying for stuff at the counter next to me, and his little girl is dressed up like, Cinderella. I mean, it's obvious. It's one of those Disney costumes. My girls had them. Many, many little girls have them. And it's like, there's something in all of us that loves a fairy tale, hopes for it, right? You know, Jesus is the only one who can actually deliver on that grand hope and dream that you could actually be in a position one day to not only be loved by a perfect person, but to be a perfect person person to return that love and that's what he's doing here powerfully he's not asking you to step into a role or to take on a costume he's asking asking you to trust him and his powerful love that as he begins to transform you it's with a view that one day you will be presented in full glory I have no idea what those beautiful robes of righteousness will look like but they're spoken of from the old testament through the new I love the thought of that because often in in the shame of my sin, I felt absolutely exposed. First before God, sometimes even before other people. Nobody likes to enter a room naked. Those are traumatic dreams. We sometimes have those funny dreams, right? You know, you're, you suddenly are going back to school and you're not wearing the appropriate, you're not wearing any clothing. And, and, and you're glad to wake up out of those dreams, but you know, to stand before God Almighty in your sin and in your shame, that would be the ultimate horror. But when you come under the love of Jesus Christ, he so loves you that he takes away whatever was shameful and now he attires you and transforms you from the inside out to where it's all glory. It's all splendor. 
powerful love. Then Paul goes on to say, not, not just splendor, I mean, that's good enough, but he gets a little more specific. Without spot, and that has to do with moral stains. Man, there's a pile of them here we could talk about. Me, you, and there's no one exempt here. But he says, there's not gonna be any more moral stain left. And then he says, without wrinkle. Those are those unwanted gatherings. It could be a wrinkle in your clothing that you had to iron out before you came to church, or some of you are like, it ain't even worth it. Or worse yet, the creases that, the, those unwanted folds of skin that begin to appear as we age. You say, what is this? It's what time and stress and sleeplessness and gravity accomplish. And then lest we think of something else that might exclude us from the category of splendor and glory, because we say, okay, no spots, no wrinkles, but then Paul says, any such thing. Let's just not even go further in that. There's just nothing you could imagine right now that would diminish your personal splendor as Jesus transforms you by his love. And then he moves on from here. Here's the third that, that she might be holy and without blemish. He perfects us in holiness. So he purifies us from the past evil. He presents, he works with a view of presenting us in splendor where there's not even like one little wrinkle or smudge. And it's with a view that we would be perfect in holiness. Holy in its fundamental idea is consecration, devotion. Do you know what's neat to me? For those of us who struggle with the quality of our faith and love for Jesus who wonder, could I ever love him enough? Could I ever be loyal enough? Could I ever be faithful enough? Here's one of those verses that opens a door to say, where, where Jesus says in essence, I'm working on that. The answer is no, not in none of yourself, but when I go to work, I'm gonna so transform you that your devotion for me one day will be perfect. Your devotion will be a reflection of his infinite, eternal, perfect devotion to you. There's not gonna be anything between us at that point. Nothing in the righteous attire we are wearing. No, no wrinkle, no spot, no blemish there that we go, oh, that's unfortunate. It's, you know, angel, go, go clean that real quickly. And, and more than what your attire is, there's not gonna be anything in you that you're a little embarrassed about in the presence of Jesus. You, you wish could be tweaked or adjusted or cleansed a little deeper. No, he perfects us in holiness. And then Paul uses the term without blemish. It's like he's just stacking up these synonyms and descriptions to say, you're gonna be everything you would ever dream of. There's just nothing that's going to be amiss in you in that great day of presentation. And it's because God's love in Christ is that powerful. And maybe you as I over the last couple of days have asked again, can this be? I, I, you know what's neat? I didn't ask Andrew to pick that song. I mean, I told him generally where we're going and he's wise and spiritual enough to you know, read the passage and start thinking through that themes. But when I saw that appear on our, on our order of service today, I'm like, oh yeah. That's a question we all need to ask. And can this be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Did he really die for me? Who caused his pain? And you know what Jesus' answer to all of those questions is? An emphatic, yes, it can be. It can be. Not only can be, it is. You know, I mentioned just a moment ago that particularly for those of us who are growing older, it's hard some days to look in the mirror, isn't it? And I, you know, stress, sleeplessness, and I even mentioned gravity, it all takes its toll. And there's a lot more we could add to the list, but almost morning by morning, um, 
we discover things that we, we still are surprised by. And, and we still hope that we might actually look in the mirror and see the young, vibrant version of ourselves that we once knew. Do you know what's happening uh, through the washing of the water of the word and the work that Christ is doing is that day by day, he, he's actually taking us from a, a wreck and mess of a bride who's morally blemished and, and spiritually wrinkled. And day by day, he is transforming us into perfection. Paul even mentions this in his letter to the Corinthians that as we look into the mirror of God's word, we are transformed from one glory to another. It's hard to see it from one day to the next, but over a lifetime, it's powerful because Jesus really does love his bride and he must have a perfect bride. There is no stain so dark that he cannot cleanse it away. There is no crease in your spirit so deep that he cannot remove its evil trace. There is no blemish so expansive that he cannot repair and renew for you are his beloved bride and he will have you one day in your perfection. I love the words of John Stott. Christ's love is transformative love. Stott writes, so too, the church's true nature will become apparent. On earth she is often in rags and tatters, stained and ugly, despised and persecuted. But one day she will be seen for what she is. Nothing less than the bride of Christ, free from spots, wrinkles, or any other disfigurement. Jesus sanctifies his bride. There's the third and final point. Jesus strengthens his bride. It is a strengthening love. And two, two particular words here. First of all, he nourishes us and cherishes us. Nourishment is a word that simply means to feed. And it's feeding over a period of time. Experts tell us, this is always shocking to me, that in a nation like ours, one in eight Americans live with what is called food insecurity. That means for many of them, they really don't know where the next meal is coming from. Malnourishment has to do with a supply that would be less than the minimum that a, a balanced diet and of food and nutrients would require for health and growth. Some of you have lived through seasons of that. I trust none of you are in that right now. Please let us know. This church would help you before you walked out the door. Jesus never lets his bride reach a point where she is not generously supplied with what she needs to grow, with what she needs to be healthy. Now, he never forces us to eat at his table, but there's always a feast, as Psalm 23 says. He really does prepare a banquet table for his people, even in the presence of their enemies. Sometimes we're so distracted by our enemies that, that we turn away from the banquet that he's offered us. Sometimes we think there's another banquet table that's more desirable than his and we give in to the temptations of the evil one who, just as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden, said, look at this. This that I'm offering is good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and desirable to make you wise. And we buy into the lies of the devil and we banquet at another table. But that is never a feast. It's always deadly poison. And short term, it gives you a stomach ache 
a soul ache, so to speak, and if you continue to banquet at the devil's table, you will die. But day after day, Jesus stands before his people, and primarily through this word, this living word, this active, holy, sacred word feeds us richly and says, I know you're fearful. Let me remind you of my sovereign power. I know you have concerns about how you as an earthly father will provide for your little ones, but let me remind you, I'm the father who says, seek first the kingdom of God and all my righteousness, and I will add all of those things to you. You see, he feeds your soul, he feeds your heart, he feeds your mind because you are his beloved bride. What are you hungry for? In John 6, verse 35, Jesus said to the disciples, and, and apparently there were hundreds, if not thousands, of others who, who coming out of that miraculous feeding of the 5,000, were hanging around, hoping to see another miracle. But in that same context, he says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But when he also began to teach about the reality of the spiritual nature of the bread that he was offering, and many walked away, because they were just there kind of for the sideshow. I think that's a great moment for us to consider what kind of nourishment Jesus offers us. And again, turning to John Stott, who has written some really poignant uh, notes, he asks the question, what are you hungry for? If you are hungry for miraculously provided bread, Jesus will probably disappoint you. He did it for this crowd and, and one other, but he's not running a sideshow to impress the lustful masses. He offers himself to the masses as the bread of life. Then he notes that even further in this passage from where I just read in John 6, 35 and verse 41, he records that the Jews grumbled because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven, even as their forefathers grumbled over manna in the wilderness. Even miracles can never satisfy the lust within. Lust has an insatiable appetite. Jesus calls us to repent of such selfish living and lusting. He will not let us Christianize our lust by saying, come to Jesus, he can satisfy your deepest lusts. And you know what, if some of us are honest, that's the Jesus we want. We want him to fulfill our desires, our wishes on our terms and on our timelines. And Jesus says, that's not the bread I am. You come to me as you are, but you come to me for who I am. He nourishes us with daily provision. And then look at the second part. He cherishes us with daily protection. That word cherish means in its simplest, um, in its simplest definition to keep warm. But clearly in context, it has the idea of taking care of. Paul uses it in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 7 to say to those dear believers, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own. Or we might say, like a, like a nursing mother cherishing her own. And, and you know, beloved, that image produces thoughts of personal attention, protection, provision. I mean, it, it is such an in, a term of intimate love. And that's exactly what Jesus delights to do for his bride, for you. And then notice that last phrase that Paul uses, because we are members of his body. Here we are, we've come full circle. There are some of us who want to affirm Jesus, but kind of out there and away from us. And, and every time we try to step away, and sometimes we do it out of genuine respect or awe, we're like, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. And, and he knows that. It's good that you know that. But, but stop stepping away from him. Stop moving away from him. Every time you do, he, he takes a step and closes the gap. That's why he keeps showing up in your life in surprising ways. Because he's saying, I died for you. I will pur purify you. 
I will present you in splendor to myself one day. You are my bride. It's a staggering truth. And in our moments of temptation, we're forgetting that we're members of his body. It's part of the reason we can sit in front of a screen watching the kind of things that we do sometimes. We forget that my eyes are Jesus' eyes. That's why some of us go to places we should never go and, and, and engage in activity we would never do. We forget that our hands, our feet, our mouths, our stomachs are Jesus. Because if you've been united to him by faith, you're, you're one with him. He considers you to be his body, and we are. And so while we forget, aren't you grateful Jesus never forgets? He didn't lose even one member of his body in the past 24 hours or 24 years or 24 centuries. Christ's bride and Christ's body are the same. And to help us understand the nature of this eternal union with Christ, Paul actually draws on that one flesh union of a husband and wife, as I made note of at the very outset, and then he says, I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Oh, do you, do you really know how much you are loved? Does this not feed all the way back into chapter three? Is it any wonder then that Paul would, would pray for this dear church? Oh, this is my prayer, that you would know the height and depth and breadth and length of this incomprehensible love. It's life-changing. It's marriage-transforming. It's parenting-shaping. Uh, it, it, it's gonna change the way you return to the workplace in the morning, the way you make those phone calls later this week if you really submit yourself to what Jesus is saying and doing. This love is amazing. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we need to know this love. There are some of us who are so besought with sin, we're tempted to walk away, so overwhelmed by our doubts and fears, we wonder if you could in fact love someone like us. But thank you for a passage that unfolds so powerfully, so beautifully, so personally, the love of the Lord Jesus. So give us faith to believe it. Give us hearts that will rest in it. Give us wills that are moved to humble service and worship as a result of it. As we're praying, I wonder if there is someone here who would say, Danny, I'm, I am amazed and feeling a little overwhelmed right now and I would love to talk to you further about Christ and his love for me. I have some specific questions. Could we get together? And the answer would be yes. And if you say Danny, that, I would love to do that. Could we get together? Would you just raise your hand? I don't, nobody's looking around right now. We're not you know, keeping score of who does and who doesn't. But I'm just gonna make a little mental note because I'd like to connect with you after the service and we could find a time to meet. Or maybe you just even say, I need prayer. I believe it in my head, but this tr powerful truth needs to find its way to my heart. Danny, would you pray for me? Would you just acknowledge that? And I'd be glad to pray for you. I'm gonna remain here after the service and if you would like to speak further or just would like to have a little moment of prayer together, it'd be my privilege and joy to do that. And um, I'll, I will look for you. Father, take this word and seal it to our hearts. Let every piece of my own opinion or man's wisdom just fall uh, like chaff to the side. But let the, the truth of your word and the life-giving food that it is remain in our souls.
these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.